We'd like to take a second before this episode to thank our sponsor for this episode, Iowa Sports Supply. Iowa Sports Supply is locally owned and operated and has been providing quality sporting goods, uniforms, and corporate apparel for high schools, colleges, corporations, and Iowa communities for over 60 years. With your next team or corporate need, please visit iowasports.com. The Shooter's Touch and Iowa Sports Supply would like to remind you to support local businesses and shop local this holiday season. This week on the Shooter's Touch, we bring on special assistant coach at Wake Forest University, Coach Matt Woodley. Matt has over two decades of coaching experience under his belt where he's coached at places like Middle Tennessee State all the way out to Denver. More recently here at Drake University where he was partnered as an assistant coach with our past guest, Marty Richter. He's been an assistant under some great basketball minds. Currently, as I mentioned, Iowa native, Coach Steve Forbes at Wake Forest. Previously at Washington State, he was an assistant coach for Tony Bennett, who is obviously a championship coach and one of the best head coaches in the nation. He's also coached some great players in the past, most notably Clay Thompson, who is obviously current NBA player, NBA All-Star, NBA champion. We talked to Coach about everything, as we usually do, from his childhood all the way up to now and what he thinks of the transfer culture that we're going through in college athletics, why he think that's happening, how he could change it, as well as some coaching tactics, too. Um, he is a great basketball mind. He's very, very passionate about it. I think you'll understand that and see that immediately when we get into the episode but here he is special assistant at wake forest university matt woodley i got the shooters touch can't nobody shoot like me fourth quarter down three need a two and one better call on me better call on me if you know you need a shooter i'm ice cold like a cooler get you right though i can tutor this that mic flow i'm a hooper i got blue faces on blue faces i'm Welcome back, Shooters. Again, here on the Shooters Touch, we have another great guest this week. Um, assistant coach at Wake Forest University, Coach Matt Woodley. Coach, welcome to the Shooters Touch. Nah, it's good to be here. It's, it's, uh, it's kind of nice hearing some voices back in Iowa, especially yours, Adam. So, <laughs> Well, thank you. We got a nice day here, but uh, um, I'm sure you don't miss the weather all that much. I have not missed it at all. I haven't worn a winter coat yet, and I've probably only worn pants for about the last two or three weeks. I actually got shorts on today, so it's been pretty good. Can't, can't beat that, that's for sure. <laughs> no, I don't even know what to do. We have four kids in school, and, you know, I'm used to, at this point of the year, snow pants, snow boots, stocking caps, gloves. And last week they had the potential of an inch of snow, and they canceled school the night before. So that's just good to say. Yeah. And my wife and I are looking at each other going like, what is going on here? But uh, it's just the way it is down here in the South. Yeah, a little different. Speaking of that, how so four kids, how, how's the transition been? How is, how's everyone holding up? Obviously, wild times that we're dealing with um, at a throw a move across country in there. And, and how's everyone doing? Uh, it's been good. Um, you know, we got obviously four kids all in school. So two of them are in school right now. The other two are doing remote learning. So uh, my wife's the one that deserves all the credit in this. And when we got under our quarantine, when some of our guys tested positive, I got thrown into that mix. And man, that is way harder than coaching Division One basketball. So, like, I, my wife deserves all the credit in the world when it comes to 
the remote learning. I don't know how you continue to keep doing it. Our kids will be going back here after Christmas, so they'll all four be in-person school. But uh, the transition's been good. It's been awesome for our family. Obviously, we're at a great place, and I got an awesome boss, so that, that makes it even better. Yeah, sticking with the Iowa connection, obviously, uh, Coach Forbes, that uh, um, I assume something that you guys have had a, a longstanding relationship, or how did that kind of come about? Yeah, I've known Coach a long time, you know, way back when he was a junior college coach, and actually when I was even playing, and have a lot of mutual friends, and but we've always been really good friends, and uh, when this opportunity came, it was just uh, one of those days you couldn't pass up, you don't get an opportunity to coach at this level very often, and I have a couple other times at previous stints coach at this level, and um, it wasn't easy to leave Drake in Des Moines, but uh, this made it a little bit easier, A, working for Steve because he's an awesome guy, great coach, and then being in the ACC, being able to coach the best players in the country and coaching against the best coaches. So it was just an opportunity I couldn't pass up. And then one thing before we jump into your background, but uh, so actual title is special assistant to the head coach, correct? And correct. That's the same thing you were out at Pittsburgh. So how, how's that different, and what what is the main um, thing that does, does that entail? Well, usually, you know, you're dealing a lot with film, um, watch a lot of recruiting videos. You watch your practice, preparing for the next opponent, offense and defense. But with the new rule this year in college basketball, you know, you can be on the floor this year because of the, the COVID um, virus. So, you know, you're on the floor working guys out, doing different things, and you just can't instruct as much or at all. But uh, it's been good. It's, uh, you know, it's really not a whole lot different other than I'm not recruiting, but nobody's recruiting right now. So it's really not much difference at this time and place right now. Cool. No, that's good to know. So, well, good. Let's uh, let's turn the hands back a little bit here. We, we often like to start uh, with a little bit of background, um, childhood. A lot of us and a lot of people we've had have very similar backgrounds. And so we just like to revisit a little bit. And so what, what was it like growing up for you um, as a youngster? Obviously, competitive household. Dad was a coach. Um, brothers that were active and uh, athletes as well. And so I imagine that you guys got into some pretty intense games uh, in the neighborhood. Yeah, no matter what the season was, we all played football, basketball, baseball, played in the basement, you know, like we all did growing up. And, you know, it's kind of unique now just because of technology with nowadays kids. Everybody's got an iPad. up. We, we had a Nintendo, and I think we broke it like two days after we got it. Somebody got mad playing RBI baseball or double dribble. Those were our two main games. But um, it was great. You know, all, all of us boys, we all had similar interests. We all wanted to play. You know, we'd go to practice with our dad. Uh, we all wanted to be like our dad. We wanted to be a coach. But, like, for the most part, all four of us wanted to play until we couldn't play anymore. And when we got done playing, I just really couldn't envision myself doing anything else. So that's when I got into coaching. But growing up was great. And all of us, me, Andy, Joe, Brian, we just – it was competitive. And we were always doing something in the neighborhood with the kids. And we'd leave in the morning and – my mom, you know, when the streetlights came on, that's when we came home, and that was just our childhood. And it's different nowadays. You know, you worry probably more about, you know, I'm a parent now of four of, you know, when they leave the house, you know, you just never know sometimes with, you know, people the way they are out there. But, God, I, I always wonder, like, God, did my mom and dad even worry about where we were at during the day? We just, like, it's, it, I really kick myself, and, and it's probably more to it than that. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think one of the biggest things too was structured versus unstructured. Obviously everything now, I mean, leagues start in second grade and these kids are always doing something. Um, obviously we didn't have that growing up, but uh, what, what was it like um, once you got to the high school level? Um, same thing. I mean, obviously you're now playing a more structured, but we didn't have the AU um, circuits and stuff that they have now, but what was high school like for you when you were playing? Well, high school was great for me, but I played all sports. I played football in the fall, basketball in the winter, you know, baseball in the summertime. In the spring, you know, you play on some, like, local AAU deals where you'd get maybe a couple guys. I grew up in Davenport, you know, when I was in high school. And, you know, you get a couple guys from west, a couple guys from north, you know, a couple guys from central. And, you know, we'd play in a couple AAU tournaments. And that would be the extent of, you know, our spring basketball. And then our summer would be I was playing baseball. But our high, I had a great, great high school basketball coach in Randy Norton. He's now actually the women's coach at uh, UAB. But he was great, you know. And we go back to that unstructured, you know, he – he'd open the gym up and we'd pick our own teams and it was shirts and skins and we learned how to play. And, you know, there was no structure or run this play or like how it is now. He just opened the gym up and we played and, you know, his, he had young kids at the time. You guys all know his sons, but um, you know, Tom Norton who played for me at Truman state was his oldest boy. And then Nick was so little, um, you know, those guys would always be in the gym and, you know, that's just, that was our high school sports. And I was so fortunate in high school. I had great coaches. Matter of fact, the best coach in any sport that I ever had was my high school baseball coach at Assumption. His name was Jim Murphy. And we won a couple of state championships, but he influenced me more coaching outside of my father than anybody. He was a great coach and um, ended up being an assistant baseball coach at Iowa State. Then they cut the program and he went down to Florida and coached in the minor leagues and um, he's still coaching today. He's down in Florida coaching. And, um, but he, he was probably the biggest influence of me when it came to my coaching career was Jim Murphy. What, what is it with Assumption and their ability to get high-level coaches? It seems like, <laughs> I mean, just year after year for 10, 20, 15 years, it's, I mean, they always have a handful of coaches who um, obviously have good kids. They, they have a, a great program, but just the coaches just seem to understand and get the game. What, what is it about Assumption? You know, it's crazy. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, sometimes like, maybe the, the era of time, but like assumption, it, it, it's such a story high school and no matter the sport, girls, basketball, girls, volleyball, girls, softball, you know, football, basketball, baseball, you know, just for whatever reason, we just had great coaches. We had great kids and um, you know, we were all kind of raised the right way, you know, team first, show up on time, work hard. That was just a culture of the school, whether it be academically or athletically. And, you know, even the guys that all went to high school there, you know, we've all gone on, a lot of us have gone on to coach in college and so forth, but um, just a great area to grow up in. We all played different sports. We just had great coaches. I can't really put my finger on it, but we did, we had tremendous coaches and, um, and obviously, you know, taught a lot of the same things and, the neat thing about Assumption is, and you get this with some, because it is a small school, even though we were in a big city, um, I think we were about 100 kids a class. But the unique thing was, is all the high school coaches, I compared to like Harlan, kind of like where we're on our, the football coach worked with the basketball coach. The basketball coach worked with the baseball coach. There was never, even when I was a high school coach, Adam, you were my assistant at Waukee, but like, you're always trying to fight over like 
well, I want my guy for basketball. Well, there was never any of that. We were, they were, we promoted all sports and it ended up helping us as we, as we played during our season. That's why I think we were so successful. I think that was the biggest thing is, you know, like Mitch Osborne and Kurt Blatt, and I'm drawing a blank of who the baseball coach is at Harlan right now, but he's a great coach and they just share your athletes and, made it work like the football coach to meet with the basketball coach. So like we went to football camp, but we didn't miss anything in basketball. And if we had an open gym in, in basketball, like we wouldn't miss anything in baseball. And there was never that, you know, that peer pressure of like, well, you better pick a sport. It was, it was just, it was none of that. And I think that was the greatest thing about assumption. And that's big. Cause you, you're right. I mean, a lot of high schools are not that way where it's, no, it's very no. like, you can't be playing any basketball in the summer. It's baseball. Right. Season. Like it's, yeah, that gets that gets tough. And like you said, especially, you know, even small town schools, um, you know, you're playing all sports, you need your athletes to play all four sports, and it's good for them. And so that's a no, that's, that's good. I mean, assumption, what, what do you think as far as you mentioned it being from a big city, uh, being able to have a little bit more of that competitive level? Do you think that played an advantage assumption to be able to play some of the kids from across town? Yeah, because, you know, you're playing against Iowa City High in the playoffs, and they got 1,500 kids in the school. We had 400, and we were competing against Bettendorf. That was our big rival, you know, especially in football. And, you know, in basketball at the time was Davenport West. They ended up winning a state championship. And, um, and, you know, in baseball, we were really good. But Davenport Central was really good. But we all played football, basketball, baseball. And I think, like, more than anything, what's being lost now is the competitive nature. You know, people – think that well if I'm a basketball player I need to spend 12 months a year I, I completely disagree with that I think you should at least play two and for the most part play three if you're able to because here's what you lose is you may be a really good football player but you may be the eighth man on the basketball team well you understand being the eighth man so then your role may change in a different sport well, then that's when that team chemistry and team camaraderie comes together. Like, hey, listen, I know I was a backup in football and I'm a starter in the basketball team. So I kind of know how that guy feels. And I'm going to kind of pick him up instead of like always being the best player. Well, I'm the best player. Well, I put all this time in. This guy stinks. Well, he was out for football. And, you know, you kind of have like that built-in organic team chemistry when you play different roles on different teams. And I think that's what makes for great, great teams. And I think that's why – assumption at least during when I was in high school I can't speak on it now I don't follow it much anymore but I think that's what the best part about we were so good in every sport that we played because we all played him we had different roles on the teams and you know things like that and our coaches understood that and it was always what was best for the team and and I think that's why we were so successful against those bigger schools and we're always competing for you know whether it's the MAC championship or a state championship. Yeah, and that's great. And then how did you decide? So you're playing all sports, you're competitive. Um, it's time, your senior year, it's like, okay, what am I going to do at the next level? You mentioned you wanted to play for as long as you possibly could play. And so um, how, did you, how did you hone in and ultimately decide on what sport you wanted to play at the next level? Well, if my dad listens to this podcast, which he probably won't, like he's still mad that I didn't play baseball. That was probably by far my best sport. But, you know, you get to that point in your life, it's like you're not trying to choose something for somebody else. you got to do what's best for you, where your passion is, where your heart is, what you had a burning desire to do. And I wanted to play basketball. You know, I was a 5'11 white guy. You know, like they weren't lining up at my door to compete or to offer scholarships. But 
I wanted to play basketball and that was where my passion was. That's obviously where it still is. And that's the path that I went down. And um, it was an easy decision because I, I had an opportunity to be a scholarship athlete in football, basketball, or baseball. And to me, it wasn't so much the school that I was going to pick. It was going to be um, what sport I was going to play. And ultimately I decided on playing basketball and, um, Sometimes I always wonder if I would have stuck with the baseball where it ended up, but my heart really wasn't in baseball, to be honest, because growing up in the Midwest, there's only so much soft toss indoors, so much BP indoors. Now, maybe if I'd have grown up where I'm at now, where my kids are at now, where I could be outside playing baseball in February and March, but you guys know from the Midwest, I mean, play summer baseball so we can play games. And I just, I got so tired of being indoors in a gym hitting soft toss. It just, it really wasn't my passion, even though that was by far my best sport. Well, we mentioned it here too, coach, um, you know, no, or excuse me, not a lot of AAU back um, when you were in high school, when we were in high school, right. um, you mentioned you, you know, you ended up, you, you ended up picking basketball. What, what was that recruiting process like? Um, you know, who are you getting recruited by? Who are you looking at? And then ultimately why Drake? Well, you know, I went to North Dakota State out of high school. That's where I went um, out of high school. They had a good program, and um, that's where I went. And then after my freshman year, um, Kurt Kanaski became the head coach at Drake. But I wasn't heavily recruited um, by a ton of schools. I got recruited by a number of schools in each sport. And a lot of people just thought I was going to play baseball. I got recruited by, you know, a lot of who's who in baseball. You know, Clemson was really at the end of the day was where I was almost going to go to play baseball, but um, ultimately I decided to play basketball in North Dakota State. Then after my freshman year, I transferred to Drake and, uh, you know, I wanted to be closer to home, wanted an opportunity to play in the Missouri Valley and, you know, really just tried to make the most of my opportunity at that point. Awesome. Yeah. And I know that, um, you know, looking back through the the years you were Drake, you know, some of our, some of our past guests had Aaron Thomas on, you know, Justin Ole. Yeah. And so, um, yep. you know, my teammates, had a background yep I had a little bit of a background about that you know about that era of you know Drake basketball but you know what were some of the things you know moving on from high school to college um you know we we have we have a lot of high school coaches a lot of high school kids listen to the podcast you know what were one or two aspects of the game I mean moving on from high school to college that you wish you would have not really known um however maybe maybe fully understood when you went to college well a couple things number one you know I was raised by a college football coach. So I had a pretty good idea coming into college what it was going to take in order to get on the floor. But what most kids fail to realize is, and, you know, I coached in the D league too, and guys that are trying to get to the NBA, but when you come from college to high school or from high school to college, you were the best player. Okay. You shot the ball every single time. Well, when you come to college, you're not going to get on the floor by scoring a basketball very few guys do that like where they come in right away you know you're talking the elites of the elite maybe those one and done guys but those are guys that none of us like it just doesn't work that way and Adam you probably went through this like shooting the ball 20 times now you're coming in you've got to learn a new system and the two biggest things are is number one the defensive end of the floor is so important when you come to college and in high school you just try to stay out of foul trouble because they need you on the floor so that's a big that, – I mean, that's the reality, especially in Iowa high school because officiating is just horrendous. You touch a guy, it's a foul. Well, they need you on the floor. So that was a big adjustment. And then the everyday work ethic 
because I was playing football, basketball, baseball. Now it's a 12-month year job. The intensity, the competitiveness, day in and day out, you trying to earn your spot on the team. And doing that, you're doing a different role. And most kids don't want to accept that because, well, I'm a scorer. I'm a shooter. Like, I'm trying to get mine. Well, hey, slappy. Like, we need you to move the ball. We need you to screen for this guy. We need you to clap your hands when you're on the bench for the first time in your life because being a good teammate is the most important thing. So it wasn't so much like that. My dad, he harped on that. Like, he told me. But, like, until you truly go through that, like, wait a second. I'm not the best player. They're not running any place for me. They don't care that I don't feel well that day because the train's going to keep moving. I got to figure out a way to get on the floor, be a good teammate, move the basketball, know all the plays, be on time, don't get a D, don't get an F because you don't want to be what I always call the list guy after practice where the coach comes up, hey, Adam, you missed study table last night. See me after practice. Like I never wanted to be – to give what I would say is don't ever give the coach the excuse not to play you. So like not knowing your plays, not showing up on time, you know, those type of things. Like that's a huge, huge adjustment for high school kids when they go to college. It's you got recruited because you were good enough. You're talented enough, period. End of story. Like they recruited you because you were good enough. Now it's all the, what you like to call the intangible things or the little things. I don't you like to use the word little things because they all matter. They all add up. Do I show up 15 minutes before practice to get my shots up so I'm loose when practice starts? It doesn't take me 15 minutes to get going in practice to do what I can do. Can this coach count on me? And like a great example for my time was like we had Garrett Sturts at Drake who came in as a freshman walk-on. Man, he just screamed play me from day one. I didn't care if he was a walk-on or not. He showed up early, knew every play, did what we asked him to do. He was never on a list. You could always count on him. He'd sprain his ankle. He wouldn't tell anybody. Um, and you can see now over his time, like, what he's doing at Drake right now. Like, he's a great example. And here's what I get a kick out of is you'll be recruiting and everybody will call you and say, hey, I got a player just like Garrett Sturts. Why? Because he's 6'3 and white? Like, you think he's – no, like, come watch him practice, watch his daily habits, his teammates. He knows all the schemes. He knows all the plays. You can put him in at every position because what happens is, Adam, you know, a couple guys go down early. They miss minutes of practice. Hey, who knows the three? Garrett raised his hand. I know it. Who knows the five? Garrett raised his hand. I know it. Well, now all of a sudden, I can count on this guy. And now all of a sudden, you get more and more reps. And then – your skill set then starts to get shown up in those practices where he just screams like, you better play me. And if you don't, we're going to lose. And like, he's just an example of a kid going from high school to college. And what I always tell people too, is like Garrett scored 34 points a game in high school. Like he was the best player in high school just because um, he didn't may not look like that right now. He scored 34 points a game. And the second thing is, is you know what else he played in high school? He was a high school quarterback. I saw him play West Des Moines Valley in a high school football game where he got hit about 70 times harder than I ever got hit once in high school, and he kept popping up. And at the time, you know, I wasn't recruiting him. I was coaching for the Iowa Energy. I'm like, I don't know what this kid, if he ever plays football, I didn't know at the time he played basketball. But I was like, this kid's something. Like, wherever he goes, he's going to play. And, you know, obviously our paths crossed a couple years later. And, like, but he's a great example of, that type of thing, you know, and I could give you other examples where guys are highly recruited, score points, came to college, and they always thought it was about them, and it was never really about them. 
Yeah, and it's 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 you know such a, a crapshoot, I guess you might say, when you're recruiting kids who who may, who you may not see that when, um, on a daily basis, or you know when you go uh, when you watch them play, and not to mention you know the I guess where we live, you know when when we're living right now with you know what people call I guess like the transfer culture, and right. we talk to a lot of you know D two D three NAI JUCO coaches on this podcast and. You know, we've talked to quite a few of them about, hey, you know, we didn't land this kid. He went, he went to, I guess, you know, uh, a bigger school, you know, and then we always talk about, yeah, but we'll just have to maybe wait one or two years and then he'll come back, right. you know? And so what, I mean, what do you think that, you know, the attitude or, or lack of attitude that, that these kids have playing to that transfer culture? Well, I think it's a systemic problem just with coaching and parenting. Like I'm a parent, so like I'm not taking, not putting myself not in that box but you know gone are the days of like sticking it out or you know going through tough times because we're all going to go through them and when you become a parent or a dad like you can't quit like I mean you don't get to you don't get that luxury and we're, we're, we're really doing our kids a disservice um, by not holding them to a higher standard because we're scared of losing them but I've always said this like as a coach, I was never worried about that when I was a head coach. And I've coached, I've been a head coach in high school, college, and the professional level. And I've never worried about that because the kids that I always had to worry about, if I was treat, like, you're going to treat them all fair. Okay. You're going to treat them fair, but they're not all treated equally. And you got to be upfront with that because that's the reality of it. Some kids are better than others and you're going to treat them differently, but you're going to treat them fair in a certain context. But at the end of the day, it's, like you have to challenge kids want to be challenged they want to be motivated they want to be held accountable they want to be held to a higher standard because my biggest fear as a coach was is in 10 years or 15 years if I come to your wedding and you say man you didn't push me enough like that that keeps me up at night that does I'd rather challenge a kid be harder on a kid and you know still treat them you know not demeaning but you know still treat them you know fairly but that, that keeps me up at night. So I just think we owe it to these guys. And if, if they don't want to buy in and do those things, they're better off going somewhere else anyway. And when I was a college coach and I had a number of kids that would come in and say, this place isn't right for me. You don't let me showcase my game or do whatever. I'm like, that's fine. Like this probably isn't the place for you, but wherever you go where they allow you to do that, two things. One, you're not going to become the player that you want to be. And number two, I want to schedule you. I'm going to schedule that school wherever you think that they're going to let you do that because that's not a recipe for winning. It's not a recipe for being successful in anything you do, whether it's life, being a parent, whatever, like you have to go through trials and tribulations and you look at like the definition of grit or, you know, you look at like Navy SEALs, like they always talk about, it's never the strongest guy. It's never the toughest guy. It's never the smartest guy. It's the person who will withstand no matter what you give them to keep getting themselves off the ground and coming to. And I worked for a guy at Washington State named Tony Bennett, and he was really the first guy that really talked to me. He said, Matt, when you're going to turn around a program, you have to find a group of guys that you can lose with first before you can win big. And, Adam, you went through that at Northern Iowa with Coach McDermott. When he came to UNI, it was a dormant program. But he got a bunch of guys, not the best players, it's never about the best players, but he got a bunch of guys that he knew he could lose with doing it his way because he knew over time that you were building that foundation in order to win with. And you look at like Tony, what he did at Washington, what we did at Washington State, guys, we got last place with the same group of guys that went to the Sweet 16, same group of guys, didn't add anybody. 
but we had a group of guys that we could lose with. And I think any time, whether you're turning around a high school program, college program, a, a pro or franchise, whatever, you have to have a group of guys, whether it's coaches, players, that you know you can lose with before you can win with. And I think that's true. And don't be afraid to cut bait. I, I, I'm not, I'm not ever afraid to do that with players because if you start making concessions to people, then you just have a whole program of concessions and then you just, you're never going to win big. And you mentioned, well, we'll have to skip around here a little bit, but while you're on the point, as far as just a, a good group of guys, we have to talk about that team that first year at Drake, um, just because I think you had such a unique group of guys um, obviously, short timeline. I uh, want to hear a little bit more about this war room that you and DeVries put together to, <laughs> to try to get a staff and get players. And, I right. mean, you guys were talking about starting from the bottom. I mean, you guys were starting from scratch and brought together just a great group of guys. Um, obviously, we've had Norton on, great guy. We've had McGlynn on, you know, like him. Uh, DJ has been a, a good fan of our program. And so, I mean, we've just followed these guys, um, really liked them. But, uh, I mean, from – from that group, you mentioned having the guys that you can uh, lose with before you can win with. Those guys kind of did it all in about a four-month period. Yeah, well, I think the biggest thing was was Nick Norton, more than anybody, set the tone. You know, here's a kid that um, really blind faith. I know Darren's even talked about it, blind faith. Like, he came, we had one player, Nick McGlynn, and kind of goes back to what I was saying, and Nick McGlynn was one of the most competitive, fiercest, toughest kids I've ever coached. Should have been player of the year that year. But, you know, then we got Nick Norton. Then we were able to get Brady Ellingson. And then, you know, the big thing was we hired Marty. And then Marty was able to convince his guys, you know, Tramel, Anthony, and um, DJ to come down there. But you look at even those guys, you know, Nick McGlynn, lightly recruited, played for four different coaches. He just wanted to win. He was at the end of his day. He wanted to win. Nick Norton wanted to transfer for his fifth year because – he just wanted to go somewhere where he could win, you know. And then, you know, the twins come in. They were lightly recruited out of high school. DJ had never even played a minute at the junior college, had the red shirt. So, and I think Marty even said on his podcast, like, those guys were so unselfish. They gave everything up for the team. Like, we didn't really coach that team. Like, we put it together. We did the hard work. Because the hardest part about coaching is putting a group together and getting them to buy into one goal. And then when Nick Norton and Brady and Nick McGlynn, those three seniors right there, man, you couldn't have predicted. Right? And those guys set the tone in the summertime in June that, hey, this was not going to be tolerated. And everybody just fell in line. And then you had a guy then, oh, by the way, we had a freshman named Liam Robbins who's going to play in the NBA someday, was his Nick McGlynn's backup. You had Garrett Sturge coming off the bench. It was just kind of one of those things that I don't think it can ever be duplicated by design it kind of just fell into place but again the profile of the guys that we were going to look for those guys all fit that profile we we didn't take some guys that were more talented and more more highly recruited for lack of a better word because they didn't fit in with Tremel and Tome, DJ, Nick McGlynn, Garrett Sturts, Liam Robbins they didn't fit in with those guys and we were going to play with seven, you know, we thought that was going to be our best chance. And then we just kind of took off from there. And, and, you know, college sports, you guys know, this is more than anything. It's momentum. We got some momentum going in the non-conference, won some close games, um, had a couple big wins and we just, the momentum kept going and 
winning was more important than individual accolades. And then what happened was everybody got their individual accolades because we did win. And, and you know, it's funny how that works, right? But it was just such an unselfish group. That it was such a joy that year. It wasn't even a year of coaching. It was such a joy to be around those guys. And they were all old too, you know, 21 years old. And, you know, Liam and Garrett were the only young guys on the team. And they, they were just wanting to get on the floor. Like Liam didn't care, he's playing it. He just, and Garrett was like, I just want to play. And so, like, it was just kind of – it all just kind of fit. And, I mean, as, as great as it was and um, enjoyable it had to be on the sidelines, I mean, you guys had some ups and downs. Obviously, to start the year, uh, you guys go out to Vegas, you win that tournament. Nick Norton was just absolutely playing out of his mind. I mean, he was he was that player that, as Drake fans, as Des Moines basketball fans, was like, oh, man, I'm so excited to watch what this kid is able to do. Um, was just – you could see the leadership just oozing out of him. Um, and then, obviously, go to Evansville, and he – tears his knee and it's just like just watching that game too you could just like that air came out of the out of the balloon and um you know it was tough for your guys but then you you bounced right back and had a great conference run and um then you got into the conference tournament and more injury bug um along the way but uh that was just such a fun time and you know you mentioned it but great leadership from all those older guys yeah, you know, it was just one of those deals. I felt bad for Nick because he put so much into that last year. You know, and my heart will always go out for him with that just because he put so much into that team, into that preparation, and he set the tone for the team. You know, but again, like at the end of the day, it doesn't take away the memories, even though the wins and losses, being around that group of kids and seeing them battle, like everything that was thrown at them. DJ breaking his ankle in the last game of the regular season. Nick McGlynn getting his knee rolled up on the first round of the conference tournament. And we just kept stepping up and stepping up and playing until the very end of the Northern Iowa game where we lost on a last second layup. You know, we got that close to the to, to, to getting on that CBS game. But at the end of the day, like that's part of life. That's part of it. Like I'm never going to – I always wonder what – it would have been neat to see what if, what would happen. But every team goes through that. And you know, you feel bad for the kids because that was their opportunity. You know, as a player, you only get so many chances. And, um, but it's never going to deter me from my vision. And, like, when I think of that team, how special it really was. How, how, close, do you guys, how close did you guys think you were to being able to get that uh, medical red shirt for Norton? Were you guys – did you, do you know it was a shot in the dark, or what were you guys thinking on that? Well, you know, just depending on the day, you know, with the NCAA, you never know. You know, I got to be somewhat careful what I say here. But um, you just – you never know. You know, you see some of these kids get extra years, and you're like, Nick Norton was the definition of – getting a six year like come on man like like where are we at here like come on so um you that know would have been, been fun that's for sure we yeah, would have to see him go yeah it'd have been neat you know for him it'd have been great but you know he's starting to pursue his professional career and sometimes you know you, you can't time doesn't stand still it's time to move on and and things like that and he had a wonderful career and he set the tone he was every bit responsible for hanging that banner and cutting those nets down than anybody else in that team because he set the tone in the offseason for the rest of the guys so um, but it would have been neat you know you always wonder what if I did think that was a team that I thought we could win a game in the NCAA tournament you know we beat New Mexico State that year who went 30 and 3 and basically had Kansas beat in the NCAA tournament I think it was Kansas maybe and you know we thought we could have got into the 13 or 14, because we had size, you know, you had McGlynn, but we also had a seven foot freshman, you know, we had size, we had great shooting, we had the best three point shooter in the country, we had a point guard, Nick Norton, who had already won an NCAA tournament game against Iowa State, so, and then you had, you know, Tramel 
and Tone and DJ. You know, you had guys that could – You know, you, we, we had all the pieces that we could win a game. We thought we could win a game depending on the, the right type of matchup in the tournament. But, you know, for whatever reason, it just – it wasn't in the cards that year. I mean, we'll always wonder what if. But, um, you know, it's, that's the way the chips fall. Yeah, I mean, either way, a great – a great and a fun team to watch. And, you know, I think that your first year there, that team was, I think, so good for the Des Moines scene of basketball and right, I mean, you know, right. University overall. So, you know, yeah. What if, um, however, I think that, you know, as you mentioned, Nick, I think that entire aspect of it kind of set the tone here for moving forward in the Des Moines scene of basketball. So, um, well, one question we like to ask your coach, um, we obviously talked about you and your coaching career here a little bit, but uh, when did you know that coaching was your path when you wanted to, um, when, you, when, when you needed to choose that? Yeah. You know, I always, two things. One, like I told you earlier, I always wanted to play. I was always considering myself a player first, but you know, you get to college and then you start to figure out what you're going to major in. And, you know, my dad was a coach and I saw the influence that he had on the players, you know, the players are always over at our house. I always thought that was so cool. And I didn't really understand it at the time until I got older, but like, man, the players are always around. It's much bigger than just showing up for practice every day, how you can influence somebody. And I know it's kind of a corny answer and a standard answer, like influencing people, because there's been a lot of players that I hated to coach. I'll be real honest with you. There's, you know, there's been a lot of parents that I hated to be around, you know, there's bad parts to coaching too, but you know, the good ones really overshadow the, the, the bad ones and they overshadow the bad parents that you deal with. And there's always pitfalls and things, but like, I guess, Adam, to answer your question, I guess I always knew I wanted to coach, but it didn't really come to realization until I was finishing up my playing career. And I was like, okay, like what's next? I'm graduating. I need to figure out what I want to do. I did not want to be away. I had been part of a team since I was five years old, whether it be my dad's team, my little league team, my mini basketball team, um, my flight football team, all the way growing up. I, like being part of a team to me is something that's always so special. And it always was in our, in our household. So I knew I wanted to be part of a team and coaching obviously is the next best thing um, from playing. You know, if you can't play anymore, you can coach. And um, so that's just kind of where, where, and I would say, if you can't play or you can't coach, you be a referee. And that's why we have a, that's why these referees are the way they are nowadays. They're so they're like cops. They're just bitter, man. They're just bitter. So, but I knew I wanted to coach. So um, probably the realization came to probably when I was in college towards the end of my playing career. And where did then did you get your start? So after you got done um, playing at Drake, then what, where was the first coaching opportunity? So I went to be a graduate assistant for one year at Wayne State uh, in Nebraska for a guy named Rico Burkett, who was a Des Moines native. Matter of fact, I was going to be the GA for Greg McDermott. He was at Wayne State at the time, and he then left to go to North Dakota State. But I still just went to, to Wayne State um, to be a GA. Gotcha. And then several stops uh, out West Coast, um, Denver, right. and uh, Coach Bennett um, as well. What? So as a young coach, two things. Um, one, what was the hardest part, the hardest transition for you to go from player to coach? Uh, what maybe did you not understand? And then as a, as a young coach, you're still, you know, young in age and have an opportunity to be assistant, be out on the road recruiting. Um, right. What was probably the biggest thing that you took um, those, those first, you know, five, six years uh, as an assistant coach? Well, two things. One, when you become a young coach in college basketball and you just finish playing, you still have a lot of what I call player in you. And I always say there's this line, you know, whatever color the line you want it to be, but there's a line right down the middle of this circle. 
All right, now one side is coaching and the other side's playing. You have to, as a young coach, because you get hired as a young coach because the head coach wants you to be able to relate with the players, do all the duties that nobody else wants. And back then, there was no director of basketball operations. There was no video coordinator. You were everything. You were the head manager, the video coordinator, director of basketball operations, and you were also recruiting, working guys that you were doing it all. So, like, during when I was first coming up, it was a great experience. I was mad about it sometimes because I had all this stuff I had to do. But, but I always said, like, as I got older, like, you have to figure out which side of the line you're going to be on. And you can't straddle it. Like, you can't just be in with the players when it's convenient or in with the coaches. Like, you're a coach, okay? But you need to be as close to that line as you can because that's part of your job is to be able to relate to the players and get the message back to the head coach. But you can't cross over that line. You know, a great example that I always use is, is if a player comes to you and says, man, coach, I've been doing this, this, and this, why aren't I playing more? You can't say, well, if I was the head coach, I'd probably play you more. You still have the responsibility for the head coach to say, listen, if you do A, B, C, and D, you may have an opportunity to get on the floor because you don't decide the playing time. And I always tell young coaches all the time, like, I get it. I love that you're young. You can relate to these guys because I can't anymore. The technology and all this stuff, I, I don't. Like, I have nothing in common anymore. Like, like it's even like recruiting. Like, I'm going to call a 17-year-old kid. Like, what are we going to talk about? You know, like, like what on earth are we going to talk about outside of what I can do to help you become a better player? I mean, what, hey, would you play Fortnite last night? I wouldn't have any idea how to play Fortnite, okay, or Minecraft or all these other things. That, like, that, but, what, and, and, but my point with that being is you can still – because their heads are in their phones nowadays. Like, that's how they communicate, right? But you still have to figure out a way to become – I always say this, like, you have to figure out a way to get that player to believe in himself, to believe in the team concept – because ultimately, if he does all those things, he's going to play well. And you also have to explain to him, hey, player development isn't about shooting, dribbling around a cone, shooting a layup. It's about, hey, here's what's best for you in our team. You, you're going to go screen for Adam and get him open. You're going to make sure that you don't blow an assignment. Like, that's going to be your best opportunity. And that's sometimes the toughest thing that you can do as a coach are those hard conversations. But when you're a young coach, you're trying to forge your way in this profession. And it's like in any profession, or Adam and Brian, it's like you have to figure out a way to carve out some value that you have that you can bring not only to your team but also your profession. And early on in my career, it was recruiting at that point. So I was trying to carve out a niche at that point on the West Coast of being able to attract and recruit good players and bring them to the head coach that fit the head coach. And what a lot of coaches do is they just go chase the highly recruited guys so they can say on their next resume, I recruited A, B, and C, but he didn't really fit the guy that I was working for. And I think that's where it gets screwed up, especially with young coaches today, because they're going to go read the, read the Twitter, read, oh, this guy's been offered by Southern Illinois, Northern Iowa, and Creighton. Well, I better recruit him. Well, he may not be a good fit for me at the University of Denver. But this kid may be who has no offers. And I think that's the true test of recruiting because I call it more evaluating than recruiting. So the advice that I always have is figure out which side of the fence you're going to be on. Don't straddle it. And you should be on the other side with the coach. And then carving out a niche for you and your program what's best and do whatever, whatever you need to do. There's a guy. It's a great story. There's a guy sitting next to Tony Bennett at Virginia. 
His name's Ronnie Weidman. He was our manager at Washington State. And he was the most self-starting guy I've ever been around. He wanted to do everything in the office when I was the assistant. He used to wear me out. He wanted to do the FedEx. He wanted to cut my film. He went, And I finally asked him one day, I said, Ronnie, wh why do you do all this? I said, I love it. I said, I'm going to hire you wherever I get a job. Like, you're the first guy I'm going to hire. He's like, because if somebody else figures out how to do it, I don't have any more value. And I want all the value in the program. And I'm like, you know what, Ronnie? And that's why he's sitting next to Tony Bennett right now. And he doesn't even know how to spell basketball. I'll tell you that. And he'd be the first to tell you that. But he sits right next to Tony. He's going to be an AD. He's going to be a big-time athletic director somewhere because he figured it out. Most coaches, what they fail to realize when they become a young coach is they want to be the head coach from day one. Well, here's the, coming to the head coach. Hey, here's two plays I want to run. Listen, I, I don't need your help with scheme. What I do need your help with is to make sure that Jeremy gets to the training table on time and that the floor, the floor is sweeped up before practice, that the scoreboard's ready to work, that we have basketballs on both ends, that the red pennies are out where they're supposed to be. If you do all those things, people are going to take notice. That's why Bill Belichick and Nick Saban, those guys, they always promote from within because those guys understand, understand the rungs of the ladder that it takes to go because there is a process in coaching that needs to take place and a growth that needs to happen, whether it's film exchange that you learn at a young age, team travel, running a basketball camp. Everybody wants to be the head coach. And those are the guys that don't create value for themselves because we'll go hire somebody and pay that guy to teach us motion offense. But what nobody wants to do is make sure that the lights are on, that like we can come in, that the head coach can come in there and coach his team. And young coaches today, they really don't understand that. And it's no fault to themselves. You know, it's just, it's just the way that, that it works nowadays because guys are getting hired for all the wrong reasons today. And that's why the quality of our game from the grassroots all the way up to the – to the college, it, it, you guys watch college basketball, it's atrocious to watch. For the most, it really is. Like, it's dribble, 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 run a ball screen and play. Dribble, 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 run a ball screen and play. And that's why you look at, like, a guy like Tony at Virginia. Like, those guys all know how to play. And what's funny is, is kids don't want to go there out of high school, but yet when they go there and you go to college, when they get to the NBA, they all stick. Because yep. they understand, oh, I'm not the most important guy. I got to know how to screen. I got to know how to move the ball. I got to know how to screen. It's not what's best for me. You look at Villanova, most fundamentally sound team in all, and they're the most simple team on offense. But yet I turn on a college game. I'm going to turn on tonight, and I don't really watch much college. I, I really don't unless it's somebody I have to scout. Um, but during my quarantine, there's no NBA on, and I'm watching all this college basketball. I'm like, oh, my God. Like, dribble, 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 pull it out, run a high ball screen. And then there's no organization after that. And that's just the way our game is. And that that's just the way that it's being taught. And it's really unfortunate. And that's why you see so many rookies and young guys, when they get to the NBA, they're not prepared to play. And it's no fault to the college coach because this thing has all been sped up. Um, one, one year, can I get to the NBA? Two years, I want to get to the NBA. And then it's because the college coaching is great, but then it goes back to like high school. I don't want this guy to transfer. So I'm just handing the ball and let him go. And everybody's so scared of this transfer thing that we talked about earlier, but yet it's made for a worse game. Our game is so poorly played. Now I'll say this, the shooting, the ball handling are at an all time high, but the team concept, the passing the ball, the screening, um, moving the basketball spacing, those things are – these kids are so ill-prepared 
when you get them when they come from high school to college and especially when you go from college to professional basketball they're so ill prepared to play um, and it's an it's an indictment on how our game is today because all we want to do is play games fundamentals like like right now here, here's a great example we're doing we're in quarantine right now so our guys have been off for 14 days so i'm back in here working on the, in the gym with these guys and here's what we spent the last 15 minutes on the first 15 minutes of every day is what coach forbes calls snow valley you guys love it you guys know snow valley yep. and it's we call it snow valley so snow valley for 15 minutes it's two dribbles with your right hand pivot on your left foot make a chest pass guys i coach in the acc we got three guys that can probably do that without me stopping it every single time. And like, think about that. I mean, just think about that when we were growing up, at least in particular, when I was growing up, a forward pivot step and pass was like brushing my teeth in the morning. And that's just where we're at right now. And, um, and that's what we're doing every single day. And here's, what's funny. The guys like it because what's happening is they're getting better. We've gotten better the last seven days here coming our quarantine. Then all of a sudden we played five on five yesterday and today. Our offense was so much cleaner. Our offense was so much better. We were low turnover. We were getting good shots. We were doing things in our driving kick passing game that they had been able to do because everything is so sped up. And we weren't able to do that this year when we took the job because of the pandemic, because we just didn't have any time on the floor. And But the guys like it. Like it goes back to the kids want to be held accountable. Nothing's too simple and too minute. Everybody wants to – Everybody wants to go to a game and watch a coach run three cool set plays and think that guy's a really good coach. And when I watch it, that's not how I watch the game. I'm like, man, this guy caught it with a proper pivot foot. He shot faked. He fed the post. He didn't catch the ball and just take off dribbling. And like, those are the things like as a young coach, if you could somehow master those things as a, as a, as a teacher, you're going to be so much better along because you're going to be able to coach a kid. And then as you get older in this thing, because now I got guys coming in here, want to watch film or whatnot, like I'm playing better because I'm doing these things that I should have done in third, fourth, and fifth grade at camp. Now all of a sudden I am playing better. And then when you have one guy plays better, then the next guy plays better. Now all of a sudden your team plays better. And like I tell the guys all the time, then you look better, you know, and, 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 you know, the long winded answer there for, but like, that's just kind of where it's at. What I always, I always think are compared to like the Euro game and what they're doing as far as, I mean, they, there's a, there's flip, they're working. So we'll go, what, two hours of practice and the kids will go and play 16 hours of games on the weekend or after two hours of practice. It's just like, we're over there. It's the exact opposite. They'll have, you know, 16 hours of practice and go play one game. Like, it's just crazy on how, if you can join the skills with the athleticism that we have. Well, and it goes back to, how our grassroots basketball and listen, college coaches are the ones to blame because we want to go recruit AU. We want to watch them play. We want to do all these things for these kids. It's like, trust me, like you point the finger at, I always say like you point, not the finger, the thumb, like it's coming right back on us. And, but what you have is like when, when I was growing up and I hate being this guy, I never thought I'd be this guy, but when I was in high school, we had 18 games. Okay. You may play six, seven, eight games in the spring. That was it. So the games matter. Okay, you can't play good basketball playing two, three games in a day. It's impossible. Pros can't do it. And yet we're going to evaluate these guys. They're playing two or three games a day, and they're just slopping through it. The basketball's crap. There's no team concept. It's has it's like I always tell guys like, oh, I wouldn't watch this guy play AU and he scored 42 points. Well, the structure of the game is nothing the way I'm gonna evaluate him with how he's gonna play for me against Southern Illinois on Saturday night. 
he's going to have to move the ball, sprint back on defense, talk to his teammate, not going to be able to hear. Some things are going to go bad. Are you going to jack up a shot? Like, and so like the foreign kids, it's like, and I don't love the foreign game. I'm going to be honest. I've been over there a number of times. I think it's too regimented. I think we need to find, we need to find a happy medium between how we do it in America and how they do it over there. Um, but again, like, so my point of this is like, there has to be that happy medium, but the games need to matter. It's still about competing. It's still about winning. It's still about playing good basketball. And you can't do that playing 60 games in the summer. It's impossible. I mean, it's impossible because now the games mean nothing. It's kind of like when you yell at your kid, I yell at him. If I yell at him for everything, it's sooner or later, it's going to be on deaf ears. You know, like it's like training a dog. Like, if I get mad at him when he pees in the house and the next time he doesn't, I'm too lazy to go clean it up or discipline him. Like he doesn't know whether to go outside or stay inside to go to the bathroom. Right. Yeah. And so like, it's kind of like, how, how are we going to, and again, the thing about overseas, which is unique to way it is in America is there's a true leadership of like, you know, you hear coach K talk about it this week. We don't have a commissioner for NCAA basketball. So there's like, I would say like if committees are running things, it's just, it, nothing's going to get done. You, we all know business. Oh, we got this hiring committee to hire a coach. What? So now you have like 10 different opinions to hire a coach. And those people know nothing about the game of basketball. So like you need, you know, until there's true leadership in our country, when it comes to basketball, like think about it, guys, we're, it's 2020, almost 2021. We don't have a shot clock. I mean, think about that. I mean, like, are you kidding me? And, and, and the fact of the matter is, like, there's not one legitimate argument outside of economics. Is it, so some AD at some high school in Iowa doesn't want a shot clock. Why? Because he's got to pay for it. He's got to find somebody to run it. Like, this could all be solved. USA basketball has enough money they could put shot. And, oh, by the way, we said the same thing about football about 10 years ago in the state of Iowa about a play clock in a football stadium. You guys all know that every stadium, I mean, there's not a stadium either that doesn't have a play clock. They got somebody running it for football. Yeah. So it's, 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 it's absolutely my, and well, by the way, those shot, those play clocks in football, do you know what they're compatible with? Every basketball hoop in every gym in every high school. So yeah. now you're just lazy to find somebody to run the clock or pay somebody $12 and give them a voucher to buy a hot dog at the concession stand. Right. Like, come on. But again, so like, it's like that's just a little thing but like that's just where we're at that's where we're at in our country and that's why our game suffers that's why when you watch college basketball right now that's the way the way the product looks the way it is and and that's the way it is that's just the reality of where it's at you can't watch a college game and say that boy man those guys really that's a team and it just some teams are better than others so they stand out but it's still all four it's dribble 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 pick and roll Let's see what happens. If oh, we're hurry up and run out here instead of pick and roll. Like it's just, it's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah, I would 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 have to agree. Did you did you happen to see the clip of the um, Des Moines Christian Madrid game or something where they held the ball for four seven minutes the other night? I just I did. How disgusting is that? Oh man, yeah, it's, it, it's I, I feel bad for the kids, man. Oh, yeah. absolutely, I I agree, and yeah. I, I agree with you on the shot clock too. I mean, there's no, I mean, we're technology wise now, it's too easy to put them in. It's just we're just coming up with excuses. There's probably a guy that could run it from an app on his phone in the bleachers. They probably do it for free. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Come on, man. Come price on, of admission man. right there. Come on. So. Come on. 
Um, hey, sticking with the high school, do you want to talk about you transitioning and um, finally getting your first head position when you came back uh, home here to Waukee and, and took the head job there? Um, two things. One, I want to know about uh, what the change was uh, moving up into the top chair. I thought uh, last week when we talked with Marty, he had a really good comparison and said it was like being a parent. Uh, you kind of think you're ready, you kind of don't know, and then you become a head coach and you're always on. And um, I thought that was a good explanation, but want to hear your, your take on having your own program. And then and then second part of that, too, is the CIML um, is obviously a super competitive league, um, not only from an athlete, but from a coaching standpoint. And so uh, what was that like for you and, and what kind of high level of coaching were, were you up against, even though it was at the high school level after after coming from Division One? Well, here's the thing I'll tell you is number one, coaching is coaching. All right. So some of the best coaches I ever coached against was Bobby Sanquista Johnston, BJ Windhorst, he was at Southeast Polk, Mike O'Connor was at West Des Moines Dowling. Um, I mean, Vance Downs, I have the ultimate respect for a great coach at Ames High School. I'm probably omitting a few guys um, that were great coaches, but coaching is coaching. You know, and I have, my dad was a high school coach. So the biggest thing to me going to become a head coach is you're responsible for everything. You know, as an assistant coach in college or assistant coach in high school, you have your little core duties. You go home, you're fine. You don't really think about it till the next day. You do to a certain extent. But as a head coach, I always say when you wake up at three in the morning, you're the head coach and you're thinking about something. And 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 that's just the reality to it. And I think Marty said something about like being a parent. That was great, what he said. I would just echo what he said. But you're always on, like you because the buck stops with you, the way your team plays a representation of you, the way your team acts on and off the floor is a representation of you. Um, and that's just the reality of it. So you're responsible for so many things. You know, when's the bus coming? What time do you want to shoot around? What time do you want to practice? You know, as an assistant, you just showed up. Hey, practice at 315. Like, no, you're ultimately responsible. Hey, when this kid doesn't play, you got to deal with, the, with a phone call from a parent who's completely delusional. And you have to do it in a diplomatic way, explaining to this parent, like, listen, you're not at my practice every day. Your kid dogs it every single day, and yet you think he should play. Like, so you, those conversations, you can't be as belligerent as I just am, but like I was to a certain extent because – like you're not here and, and, and I know more than you know, and it may not be the right decision, but it was a decision that came with a lot of thought. Like I just didn't throw things on the wall. It came with a lot of thought and, you know, how you talk to players and how you explain things to them. I never had an issue with players, with kids, because I felt like my honesty to a certain, whether it was good, or, they may not like me and I was fine with that. Um, but I never thought we had an issue I never really dealt with a player issue. I know there are a couple parent issues, um, but I just think like it really taught me no matter where you coach at, like you need head coaching experience. Like I wasn't ready. It didn't matter that I worked for the best coach in the country for all those years of Tony Bennett. Like I could, yeah, I got shell drill and I knew how to, what offense run deep, but you're never ready because there's so many things that come up um, that you just you need experience to deal with different type of scenarios and experiences and and oh by the way the guy on the other the other bench he's a pretty good coach too so but anyway at the end of the day um, the best way I can explain is you're just responsible for everything and the buck stops with you and it's a representation of you too you know you as a person as well. And then after that, so I'm picking up on a theme here and that you must really like to build programs from, from the start because you've kind of. Right, I had all the bad ones, man. <laughs> so, 
So, I mean, obviously, Waukee, we know Waukee now is um, where they're at and where they've gone since uh, you've been there. Obviously, we're not that when you took it over. And then uh, Truman, same thing, obviously moved on then south to Truman. A um, little bit of a program in a tough spot when you got down there. Now off to, what, six, seven, eight, no, whatever they are now. Coach Horner down there doing a nice job. But uh, right. um, so then what was it like then? So now your head, you had, like you said, got that head experience. Okay, let's try this at the next level. What, uh, what was right. it like then going to head coach at college? Well, it was great. I was really excited. You know, um, you know, you always want the opportunity to, to, to call your own timeouts. But, I mean, you talk about a program that was in complete disarray. And um, it just was. Had had one winning season in 18 years, 16 or 18. And like I said, but I had great experience from my time with Tony and how to build the program. And then I had the head coaching experience of kind of the way that I wanted to play at the high school level. And it was a great fit for me um, going there because I didn't want to do it what I would call the quick fix, you know, get transfers and, you know, guy. I wanted to build this thing so it would last. And I think that's the true thing. Like when a coach leaves a program, what does that program do when you leave? I always think that's like the true reflection of how that thing was built. And, you know, the, the, it was hard at Truman, man, because that was a great league. It's the best league I've ever coached in by far best coaches by far um, the hardest by far the best coach league um, that I was ever in but it was really hard we got a group of guys um, predominantly Central Iowa kids that all came in there bought into the vision stuck with it we lost our butts off it was the same group of kids that set the conference record for wins and won 20 games at the end and it's the most gratifying as a head coach it's I am so close to all those kids. Now, there's a few kids on that team that I'm not close with because they didn't want to do what we wanted to do. And um, But there's a group of kids, Cole and Corey Myers, Andrew Vanderswag, Mike Carlson, Kyle Kanaski, my college coach's son, Reed Mells, a Des Moines Christian kid, Tyler Anderson played at West Des Moines Valley. But those guys, they bought in. They never wavered. Hell, I wavered more than they did. Um, to be honest, like, what the hell am I doing? Those guys brought it every single day, never held their chins. We had some unfortunate things happen, but we kept banging away. And all of a sudden, boom, we just started clipping people left and right. And it was the, mo it's the most gratifying experience I've ever had as a, as a coach um, because of all the hard work that we endured because we went through the tough times. The Drake thing, just we won. Like, it wasn't like any tough thing. We, bam, we just won, you know, and – um, the Washington State deal, we got our butts beat in. But, like, this one is gratifying because we all came in together. We all walked out of there together with the exception of a couple guys that had one more year of eligibility when I left. Um, but that was awesome. That was a great experience. And then you look at after we left, and Chris Foster, who was my assistant, took over the job. Great coach. My best friend, you know, to this day. Like, Chris, Chris was the greatest person I've ever, I mean he there's not a better human being like he was you know you talk about getting like he was so good for me because I was intense in your face and he'd come to me and say hey, Matt listen you keep talking to him like that you keep acting like that he's not going to play well and I know that's important to you and I'm like you're right god damn it like you're right like <laughs> But he was so good for me. And then when he took over the program, he won his butt off four straight 20-win seasons, went to the NC2, done CAA tournaments. And then when Chris handed it off to Jeff, um, now he handed him an NBA player, mind you, Roderick Thomas, who just made the Houston Rockets. Um, people just, just, made, just made the team the other day. Um, but 
like it's just continues to go. They haven't changed the culture. It's just rolling. It's kind of like Northern Iowa when Mac handed it off to Jake. It just, you know, the, the it, it's set in there. Nobody's tried to be bigger than the program, and it's going to continue to roll. And I know Jeff's done a great job. And he won their first ever conference championship last year, and probably have a great chance to win it this year. But um, yeah, that was super gratifying. But but Chris was great, man. He I, I can't say. And again, I had two other assistants when I first went through Tom Lawrenson who's an Iowa native, who's now the head coach at Mount Marty. Hell, he won a national championship. But And I had another assistant named Matt Fitzpatrick, great coach. He was um, – he's now the head coach at Assumption High School, and um, he, he's wonderful too. Like, those guys recruited, and we had a formula and a profile of guys. And, um, but it was a great time. It was a great learning experience for me. Uh, I learned more from my assistants than, than they probably learned from me. And, you know, and I learned so much from those guys. And then had the opportunity to step up to the next level, come back to Des Moines um, and work with the energy. And at the time, still the D league, right? We were the D league, right. not the G yep. league yet. Um, with the D league. And so talk a little bit about the next level and what, it, what it means to be a pro. And then, you know, for our listeners, how big of a difference is there between a high level college um, player that, you know, we might see at Iowa, Iowa State, and then those guys that actually get an opportunity to become professionals? Well, to, to, answer, to answer your question, so I always wanted to coach in the pros. I, I love the pro game. That's the game that I watch. I've always watched it growing up. Just never really had the opportunity. I actually had a, friend, had a guy, Nate Bjorkman, who's now the head coach to the Pacers, and I became really good friends during my time at Truman. And he's the one, he was the head coach to energy. And we, we had a lot of conversations and I'd come back home over Christmas or things like that about coaching at the next level. And it's just something I always wanted to do. And, um, you know, there's an opportunity to, to move up. And I left Truman right before the season started to go there. Um, but it was like, I always say, like, I learned, I got my master's degree at Washington State coaching with Coach Bennett but I got my doctorate and PhD in professional basketball. It's the best coaches, the best players. It's not even comparable. The amount of detail that goes into coaching a professional team. A couple of reasons. One, there's so many possessions in a game. It's a matchup game. The rules are completely different. And until you've really been in it, like you really don't understand it, but that game goes fast. And oh, by the way, it's 48 minutes. It's not 40. It's not 32 as in high school. You know how many possessions that is? I mean, you're talking – 100-plus possessions in a game with 20 seconds in between each possession. And you got to be on top of it. And you just – you got to be on top of it when you're playing and when you're coaching. And I learned my, my basketball IQ went from 0 to 100 coaching in the pros. To answer your question about the talent, it's comical to think that a high major player can go in and play well, not only in the G League but even the NBA – it is. It would be like asking a junior high player to go play in the Drake game tonight against whoever they're playing, and to play well. That's the equivalent. I use it all the time. It'd be like the best player at Indian Hills Junior College or Indian Hills uh, Junior High or Stillwell Junior High in West Des Moines or Joaquin Middle School to put the uniform on for the Drake Bulldogs tonight and play well. That's about the the and that's the reality of it. I mean, I had the best college players in the country. Kalen Lucas, Big Ten Player of the Year, Wayne Selden, Perry Jones, Matt Costello, Cartier Martin. These guys can't play in the NBA, guys. These guys were all conference high major players, and they can't get in the NBA. I mean, Curtis Stinson's probably one of the greatest players to play at Iowa State. He never played in the NBA. 
great D-League player, but, like, couldn't play in the NBA. And to truth be told, a number of those guys I just mentioned couldn't play well for me in the G-League because that's how good it is. And I say this all the time, it doesn't matter the level of competition. Like, do you understand, like, 20% of the college players in the NBA right now, it's actually 23% played at the mid-major, low-major, or small college level. So one out of about every four to five play college players in the NBA that come from college are not high major players. They're not from the Big Ten or Big 12. So it really doesn't matter. We Look at it this way. Damian Lillard, Steph Curry, Seth Curry, you know, he transferred. Like, look at the number of these guys that come from Davidson, you know, or wherever they may come from. And look where they're playing in the NBA. And playing well. Like, you're talking Hall of Famers, you know, and – it's just the reality of going to that next level, guys. It is almost unexplainable of how good these, these guys are at the professional level. Because what happens is, is you're talking about two completely different games. And some of the strengths that you have in college do not correlate to the NBA because of the rules. You know, in college, you can stick five guys in defense right in the middle of the paint. So if you can't shoot, you're probably not a good player. Well, in the NBA, the game's opened up. It's just it's it's just a completely different game. The schedule's different. Um, you're playing three to four games a week. You have to be a smart player. Um, there's just so many things that go into that. And the most the biggest one is what I talked about earlier is these guys that come from these big schools are the best player. Well, they're paying LeBron James $30 million for the Cavs. They don't need you to come in and score 20 points. They need you to run the left wing and get to the corner and guard your guy and not blow a pick and roll assignment. And when you do that in college at, let's say, Kansas or Duke or whatever, you're still going to play. Well, you do that for Portland, you're not playing. And then the way the college systems are nowadays, they're not they're not trending to what the NBA – because the NBA is not going to do what the NFL is doing. The NFL is basically saying, hey, these are all these quarterbacks we're getting now. We better run a spread offense in the NFL. So we're, they're, they're catering to the college game. The NBA game is not catering to college basketball because of overseas, small college, mid-major, guys that are coached the right way. They're not catering to those programs because they're going to play their style at the professional level, unlike the NBA or the NFL. So what's happening is, is that you get to day one of training camp, they don't care if you played at Duke or Truman State. If you're not at the nail on a side pick and roll when the ball's being iced, you're coming out and they're not waiting for you guys. That's why like they're not waiting for you to 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 catch on. Eight think about this. Think about this guys. Every year there's 30 first round 30 first round picks. You understand do you know that nine, on average nine guys that are taking the first round never get their second contract. Never get their second contract. You're talking about generational money because of the salary cap. So now when you second contracts, when you make all your money, that's why a guy like Kyle Korver's 100 years old still playing because they can count on him because he knows what he's doing. I mean, he can barely get down the floor, but he's going to make $50 million because he knows what he's doing. And so my point of this is, is it goes back to a grassroots of basketball of how this game is being – and the NBA game is not changing. It's not going to be like the NFL. Jalen Hurts and Kyler Murray and these guys are going to play well in the NFL because these NFL coaches – because of their guaranteed contracts and those type of things, they're, you're seeing everybody in the NBA is not doing that, guys. There's enough good players in college basketball overseas that they can find the 450 roster spots um, for guys that want to do what they want, that, that they're asking them to do. And to prove your point, too, you know, you mentioned uh, Harry Jones. 
obviously a, a great, probably, prob, probably a top, top five, top three player in college basketball before he went to the NBA. I remember seeing his name on, on the energy roster and, you know, being, being so excited to go down and watch him. And so opening night, I went down there and watched him and, you know, was honestly disappointed in, in how he played because he just didn't, you know, his game didn't translate. He didn't have the work ethic, whatever it was. Um, right. You know, there's, a, always, a, there's always a reason. Player that was that right. in college. Yeah. There's always a, a reason. A player that was that good in college just, just couldn't cut in the D-League. Yep, yep. And then I had a guy named Larry Owens. You guys know who that is? Probably don't. Played at Oral Roberts. Um, averaged 12 points in college. Um, played three years with the San Antonio Spurs. And just because – and he got called up because he moves the ball, played defense, could always count on him, high-level, high-character guy. Bam, he's playing the NBA. You go right down the list, guys, right now in the NBA. You're like, oh, Matt Thomas. Like, he's – he can shoot. But, like – there's a reason he's sticking, right, guys? Like, I mean, you can name – I can name 10 Cyclones off the top of my head that probably had better college careers, but he's probably having the best pro career right now. You know, Bryce White, you know, all these guys go right down the list. Well, Matt Thomas just got re-upped again. You know, he does – plays his role, stars in his role. And it's, it's every level, guys. It's every level. Yeah, it makes a huge difference. Like you said, doesn't matter. Even from high school to college, you mentioned it. I mean, doesn't it, matter. It's all gotta, relative, guys. Yep. It's all relative. I'm, Each is different. It's all relative. Freshman shirts. Freshman, freshman that wants to play on their high school team, it's the same thing. Like if you wanna, if you wanna play up, do the do the things that nobody else will, and you'll find some minutes and grow from there. So there you go. Yep. Yep. Well, that was. That was great stuff. Awesome. Uh, interesting, interesting topic there. Uh, well, Hey, Hey coach, we, um, have, have one more section here. I want to get you on your way, but we like to end the yep. show with a little rapid fire. Let's do Brian's it. Here with a couple questions and you tell us what you think. All right, let's do it. My, right, my computer's about ready to die. So we got about well, five minutes. Oh, perfect. We'll make it rapid then. So, <laughs> <laughs> all right. So first one, we always lead with this. You've been in a lot of leagues too. You've been big East ACC, um, the Valley, but where's the, what's your favorite visiting, I mean, you've had a lot of home courts too, but what's your favorite visiting arena to coach in? Oh, uh, it's a tie. Gonzaga and Syracuse. Ooh, okay. Yep, K- Cary Dome's awesome. Come what a on. unique – oh, I mean, unexplained. I've coached at Cameron and Duke and Arizona and Kansas, but Gonzaga is right up there, 5,000 people, whatever, small, but incredible. <laughs> Plus, it was awesome because we beat them there for the very first time ever in their arena. And, yep yep that's that's a good one then that's it's funny too you mentioned yeah the size just the difference between those two gonzaga and uh the carrier. probably the biggest one yeah there was like 20 some thousand there the day we were there it's crazy that's unique, unique spectacle i can tell you that um so where do you put cp3 on the all-time point guard list well gosh he's got to be number one right i mean <laughs> his, his name's right here his jersey's right here in my office and he just he just gave us $4 million to build a practice facility. So, and he's an awesome guy. I got a chance to meet him. He's number one. He's number, he's got to be number one. I got to go with the politically correct statement there. There you go. He's got some years left too. So he can just add to the resume. And he's my son, one of my son's favorite players. So good, good, good. Um, Spent a lot of time in Des Moines. Where's the best piece of pizza in Des Moines? Best piece of pizza. I would say, OP by far, not even close. OP. There you go. Eastern Iowa like that too. Um, favorite basketball shoe? Oh, um, I would say the Harachis. 
1993 Fab Five, the Hirachi, still one of my favorites. That was the, the start of the baggy shorts era. I was in high school, so we got to wear baggy short size, correlate um, the, the Hirachis. Uh, now, my favorite shoes are the Air Force Ones by far, but the Hirachis would be um, that or even the, 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 the 11s with the Jordans, but I'm going to yep. go with the Hirachis. I like that. That's good. I like that answer. Um, favorite golf course? You get, you get some time to play in the summer. Do you have a favorite course? Well, my favorite course in Des Moines um, is um, Copper Creek because that's where me and my brothers and my dad always played. So I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay with that one. Good old Copper out there and way out there on the east side, way out there by the fairgrounds. Uh, Copper does uh, like at least one a month. Every sun, every other, every few Sundays they have a four-man scramble out there. So good place to go out and they got some buddies in town. So there you good. go. Good answer. Um, so if we take the if we take the Woodley boys right now and uh, put them at the free throw line and shoot ten, who's who's making the most? Me, not even close. Ten out of ten. <laughs> not even close. Those guys don't even have a chance. Not, not none of the other three do. Oh man, we'll have to. Andy's listening for sure. We'll see what he says about it. <laughs> He'd be second. He'd be second. I'll give him second. <laughs> So uh, when, when Adam and I finally get a chance to come out and do the little bit of the Carolina swing as far as catch some basketball games, uh, before, we, before we head to one of your guys' game, where in Winston-Salem do we have to get a bite to eat before heading to the game? Uh, Fratelli's. It's right off of campus. Great place. Probably one of the better restaurants I've been to. So definitely Fratelli's right here in Winston-Salem. And that may or may not change. Hopefully not by the time we get out there, once you get to experience a little bit more. Obviously, you haven't got to take in the full effect of the restaurant scene yet, I would imagine. Right. You got that right. Sure haven't. Plus, so. you have four kids, so we don't go out to eat anyway. And then the pandemic, you know, then the <laughs> virus throws another wrench into the into the thing. Uh, we, my wife and I have said the same thing. We got four kids at home. We said we may never go out to eat again. I mean, nope. it's, 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 it's more of a hassle than it is enjoyable. So yep. this takeout stuff has been kind of, kind of cast me out. So just get McDonald's and throw it on the table and whoever eats the fastest gets the most food. There you go. So, well, coach, you've mentioned a lot of things, but uh, just to end with, um, what is the best thing about uh, being able to impact lives and, and be a, be a college basketball coach? The best part about it is for me is when they kind of I'm getting to the age now where they've grown up, had families, being invited to weddings and just seeing these guys do cool things, um, whatever it may be, chasing their dreams, whether it's basketball related, professionally related, and then starting their own families. And, and, and hopefully you have somewhat of an impact that they've taken one or two things that maybe you're trying to get across from them that's helped them become a better husband, better father you know, better coach, you know, something in their profession, but just, you know, I said like just coaching is to help someone find their passion for what they want to do the rest of their life. And, and hopefully that you had a little bit of impact on doing that. Perfect coach. Hey, we appreciate your time more than anything, but uh, your insight has been great. I know our listeners will definitely uh, take something from your stories. And so we appreciate you taking some time for us today. All right, guys. Appreciate it. Just so everybody knows, you know, Adam was my assistant um, my first year at Waukee. <laughs> And uh, the best part about that was I'd always suit them up when these guys all thought they were pretty good players. And I'm like, hey, here's a guy that's playing on one leg that played college basketball and still kicking your guys' ass all the time. So once you guys think you've arrived, they just stuck Ovid out there and he made about seven threes on some of our sophomores and juniors. And then I just kind of giggled. 
<laughs> so, so are you the reason that uh, his knee, he's had knee problems or what's the deal? He, 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 he had that before me. We may have, <laughs> we may have aggravated it a yeah. little bit, but. Um, I was going to say, maybe had, an aggravation. That's yeah, I was going to say, we may have aggravated it from OV, but uh, that's yeah. about it. It was a it was a lot easier playing against freshman, sophomore, and in uh, high school and college. So that yeah. that that helped out a little bit. There you go. All your experience. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, well, hey, like Brian said, Coach, we really appreciate it. It was awesome talking to you again. Uh, we we appreciate you taking the time here. Um, and obviously to our listeners as well, we appreciate you. If you like what you hear, we'd appreciate a five-star rating wherever you catch your podcasts. Um, you can catch us on every social network, on Facebook, Shooters Touch, on Twitter and Instagram, at Shooters Touch IA, and at our new website, ShootersTouchPodcast.com. And as usual, Shooters Shoot. Cause I'm right in my mind Hustling harder than ever before Saying I change cause I like when I shine The diamonds are different like Mike in his prime I got the shooters touch yeah. Can't nobody ball like me no, 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 no. Blue face, honey, so honey, so honey That's really all I see